Welcome, I'm Siros Afshar, and this is the Wigos Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. In this podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between the informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this episode, for decades, domestic workers have struggled to be recognized and to enjoy the same rights as other workers, including social protection rights. There has been significant progress over the past few years as the workers' movement pressured in national and international forum to have labor and social protection rights enshrined in their legal systems. The ILO Convention 189 and the ratification by 35 countries is one example of such achievements. However, there is still a lot to be done to formally include domestic workers into social protection systems. But also, there are important steps to be taken in order to ensure that these workers are effectively enjoying their rights even where they are legally entitled to them. In order to better understand the concepts, shortcomings, challenges and advances regarding the inclusion of domestic workers in social protection schemes, I talked to Maya Sternplasa. Maya is the social protection standards and legal expert of the Social Protection Department of the International Labor Organization. She is the main author of the report Making the Right to Social Security a Reality for Domestic Workers, a Global Review of Policy Trends, Statistics and Extension Strategies, which is being launched today, June 16th, the International Domestic Workers Day. And now, let's hear our talk with Maya Sternplasa. Maya Sternplasa, welcome to our podcast. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So, let's dive right into it, Maya. The report brings some very rich statistics on domestic workers' access to social protection. One information highlighted is the concept of legal coverage and effective coverage. Can you explain what's the difference between these two concepts and why does this distinction matter to understand the challenges for domestic workers to access social protection? Yeah, of course, with great pleasure, actually, because I think this distinction sometimes is seen as something very technical, but it's actually very important to trying to determine what possible extension strategies can really resolve these social security deficits. So when we talk about legal coverage, essentially what we mean is the manner in which persons are protected by law. So to be specific in this case, it's how domestic workers are included within the scope of social security legislation. And this is important because if you're covered by law, then by definition, you have a right. Whereas if you're not, then we're talking about something that's more close to charity. Effective coverage is the manner in which domestic workers are covered in practice. And the reason why this is important is because what we see, unfortunately, is that laws are not always applied in practice. So domestic workers may be covered by national social security legislation, but in practice, they are not registered with social insurance institutions and employers are not paying contributions on their behalf. What is the result? Well, essentially then, whether you have a right in theory, you cannot claim it in practice, and then you won't have your entitlements to the benefit. 
And to ensure the access to domestic workers' human right to social security, you really need both things. You both need legal coverage, but also effective coverage. Thank you, Maya. So the report found that coverage is not consistent across all life cycle risks and that there are important gaps in coverage for domestic workers' access to social protection. What are those gaps? And can you bring some examples of how these shortcomings affect informal workers in different countries? So there are a number of statistics in the, in the report. And one of the things that we looked at is how are domestic workers legally covered for one branch of Social Security? And what we see is that about 50% of domestic workers are covered legally for one branch of Social Security. Now, you may think, okay, that's not actually that bad. But when you think about that, actually what it means is the other 50% aren't covered for anything. So it's, it's quite shocking. Now, when they're covered, they tend to be covered for old age benefits, disability benefits, survivor's benefits, benefits in case, you know, medical care, and to a lesser degree, maternity and sickness benefits. And we see that they tend not to be covered for unemployment or employment injury benefits. That's kind of interesting when you think about the COVID-19 pandemic and the consequences of the pandemic, which hit domestic workers in quite a strong way, because it's these benefits, you know, I'm thinking about like medical care and sickness benefits and unemployment benefits that were really necessary at that, at that time. If you then look at what is the coverage of domestic workers for comprehensive coverage. Now, when we talk about comprehensive coverage, what we mean essentially is coverage for these nine risks that have been set out in um, ILO's flagship Social Security Convention, Convention 102. And these are medical care, sickness benefits, unemployment benefits, old age benefits, employment injury benefits, maternity benefits, family benefits, invalidity benefits, and survivor's benefits. So that would be, having access to all of that would be comprehensive coverage. And what we see is only 6% of domestic workers worldwide are legally covered for the full range of social security benefits under social insurance schemes. That's about 71 million domestic workers globally that are not covered for comprehensive benefits. When we look at that at a regional level, what we see is quite a lot of disparities. So in Europe and Central Asia, it's about 57.3% of domestic workers that have comprehensive coverage. In the Americas, it's a little bit more than 10%. And in the Arab states, in Asia and the Pacific and in Africa, it's close to none. And this is quite important because some of those regions host some of the largest employing countries of domestic workers. So for example, Saudi Arabia. So it's quite telling to see that there hardly any of them are covered for comprehensive coverage. These percentages obviously reflect numerous realities, if you will. The first thing is they also reflect how states provide social protection systems. And I'm not here just talking about domestic workers, but in general, like what is the comprehensiveness of social protection systems that are in place for any sector, any occupation for persons? And we have to be honest in terms of how social protection systems are developed. They're not developed in one day. And if we look at things historically, certain benefits like unemployment benefits tend to be developed much later in the development process of systems. And there's very good reasons for this. Unemployment benefits are not a biological risk. They require 
require very good institutional mechanisms. They required good coordination with employment policies. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because essentially you can't expect domestic workers to be covered for a benefit that doesn't exist in the social protection system, right? So when we think about extension to domestic workers, you can't look at it in silo. You really have to look at it as part of an overall objective of achieving universal social protection. However, even that being said, when you compare how domestic workers are covered to other employees, what we see is that domestic workers are more likely to experience social security deficits. So if we compare it, for example, to the data that came out of the ILO's World Social Protection Report late last year, you see that 86% of employees have this comprehensive legal coverage that I was talking about, whereas only 6% of domestic workers do. And this distinction between domestic workers and employees comes out also very strongly in effective coverage. So I was talking about the difference between legal coverage. So everything I was mentioning before was legal coverage. Now, if we look at effective coverage, with the, which the report also reflects. And again, just to remind everybody, that's how many domestic workers globally are registered with social insurance agencies. We find similar results. It's about one in five domestic worker is globally effectively covered. And when you compare that to other employees, what we see is that domestic workers are nearly two times less likely than other employees to be covered by social insurance mechanisms. And that's that's really important because if you think about the principle that's set out in international standards, and I'm talking here specifically about Convention 189, it's that domestic workers should not enjoy less favorable treatment than that of other workers. And if you think of domestic workers and the domestic worker relationship, often you can really, in, in legal terms, you can associate domestic workers as employees. So if they're two times less likely than other employees to be covered by social insurance mechanisms, which are the mechanisms that tend to be in place to cover employees, then there's clearly something here that needs to be addressed. So let's move on. What what are the barriers the report has found that workers face to enjoying these legal coverage and effective access to social security. Yeah, I mean, this is really important, right? Because part of the report starts with saying, look, there's these huge deficits in legal coverage and effective coverage. And the next question, you know, is really to ask why, because you can't really find solutions unless you understand what the problem is. And this is a part in the report that really tries to understand why. What are the barriers that are standing in the way of better results in legal coverage and effective coverage? When we look at legal barriers, what we see is, Generally, there's not going to be an explicit exclusion of domestic workers under social security legislation. You're not going to have a provision that's going to say this law does not apply to domestic workers, right? It tends to be rather in relation to the particularities of the employment situation of domestic workers. So to give you an example, it might be that the employment relationship between the domestic worker and the private household is not recognized because under legal definitions, employees cannot be private households, for example, and therefore they would not be covered by the law because the law covers employees and employers and so on and so forth. It could also be a question of certain thresholds that the law might have. So for example, persons that work less than a certain number of hours a month or that earn less than a certain amount are not covered by the law. This is also called 
you know, minimum thresholds. So these things are standing in the way of, of domestic workers being legally covered. Then when we look at effective coverage, there's other things going on there. And there's other types of barriers that are standing behind why domestic workers might be covered in law, but then they're not covered in practice. And often it's a question of the administrative procedures not being suited for domestic workers. So, you know, a lot of these mechanisms, these social insurance mechanisms that cover employees are set up, you know, with, you know, with the obligation to register employees, to pay contributions. And this is a responsibility of the employer. In this case, we're talking about employers that are individual households. So, you know, they may not necessarily first have the knowledge um, or know about the obligation to do this. The formalities might be such that it's very complicated for them to do it. Um, we can think about, for example, if you have to calculate what the contribution is um, and you have to take into account a domestic worker that's also paid in, in kind, how do you calculate this? How do you take this into account? In some cases, the employer is required to register the domestic workers with different institutions. And this has to be done in person. So you can imagine, you know, somebody, a private household having to go line up at one institution for a couple of hours and another one and another one. They may not have the time. There might be restrictions in terms of opening hours and they're also employees. So th there are a number of reasons why there may be an impediment at the administrative process for registering and paying contributions. There's also limited contributing capacity that plays quite an important role within the domestic work sector. And then there's issues also barriers in terms of the enforcement of labor and social security legislation. And just to name one, if we think about inspection mechanisms and their role of enforcing social security law, laws, it's very difficult to apply these in the context of domestic work, considering that the work takes place in the private sphere. And often there are constitutional provisions that are in place that limit the ability to enter into these kind of spheres. So, you know, trying to assess whether domestic workers are registered is complicated. So there are a number of barriers and probably it's not just one barrier that's standing in the way, but a combination of these barriers. Now, one key message of the report is that social protection has potential for enabling the transition of domestic workers into formal employment. Can you tell us a bit more about this statement? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think informality here is quite interesting because ultimately informality is measured as a result of social security effective coverage. So essentially, it's because employees are not registered with social security institutions that we know that they're informal from a statistical point of view. And that's how we measure what is the level of informality in the sector. And it's also because they are informal that they tend to experience decent work deficits, right? social security deficits, but also other labor deficits. So it's sort of a vicious cycle, if you will. And it really keys into the importance of, while you're trying these extension strategies to really consider the promotion of the transition from the informal to the formal economy, very much in line with recommendation 204. And obviously, because of what I've just said, social protection has an essential role to play in this in this regard. And ultimately, I think we should consider social protection as as an enabler, because that's what it is, right? It's an enabler for ensuring decent work, for ensuring protection against poverty, against social exclusion, against inequality. But it's also an enabler for accessing a whole number of other human rights, be it the right to health, the right to food, the right to education, the right to housing, to water and sanitation, etc. And 
in the end, this is why social protection is reflected in achieving so many of the SDGs, you know, be it SDG number one, SDG three, SDG five. So, you know, there's really a, a beyond the fact that it's a human right and we need to ensure that workers and domestic all domestic workers but all all persons have access to that right being a human right it also has a key role to play for enabling a whole number of other social and economic rights thank you maya so another important challenge the domestic workers movement face is to be recognized as workers and to enjoy the same rights as other workers in line with Convention 189. One lesson drawn from the report is that inclusive approaches that extend existing schemes for employees to include domestic workers, they work better compared to solutions that isolate domestic workers under special schemes. Can you explain yeah, of course. So the first thing here to say is, this is really important. This principle that domestic workers should enjoy treatment not less favorable than that, that other workers enjoy, should really be the beacon of all national extension strategies. And this question about general schemes and special schemes, we wanted to address it in the report. And we've, you know, we've tried to do it in the best possible way. But it's not only related to domestic workers, I have to say. And one of the issues with these special schemes, as we've named them for the purpose of the report, is that they tend to have a sort of distinctive financing mechanism. What do I mean by that? I mean that financing is not pooled among all the sectors, but rather is limited to one sector. So in this case, it would be like domestic work. And one of the consequences of that is if you separate, let's say, a more vulnerable group, like might be you know, domestic workers might be considered to be. This can lead to deficiencies in terms of financing, but also in terms of the effectiveness and the adequacy of protection. In addition to this, there's also concerns with regards to the principles of solidarity and collective financing, which are set out in international social security standards. There's not going to be solidarity between the better off and the less better off and then, you know, the those that are healthy and those that are unhealthy if you're secluding certain category of workers from the rest of workers. In addition to the financing um, issues that it might raise or the challenges, if we think about also the way that people transition through their careers, we see that careers are no longer linear, Right. You know, today somebody might be a domestic worker, tomorrow they may no longer be a domestic worker. So if they're moving between schemes, it's not always clear that they'll be able to combine their rights. So it just makes it in terms of implementation. And then obviously there's questions of economies of scale in terms of uh, institutions being all, you know, systematized, if you will. Now, when we say that, of course, it seems like we're saying, okay, what you need to do then extend general schemes, which is one of the key recommendations of the report. That's not to say that adaptations aren't necessary. You really need to ensure that those general schemes are adapted or attuned to the reality of domestic workers, right? Some of these barriers that I mentioned before. Otherwise, what you might experience is that you're covering them legally, but then you're not covering them in practice. There are some countries that have transitioned towards this, and we see sort of a trend in this direction. One of them is Spain. Spain used to cover domestic workers under a special scheme. And then in 2011, they transferred domestic workers under the general social security scheme. And then domestic workers had access since then to all the benefits that other employees had access to, with the exception of 
unemployment benefits, and that's actually something that was contested to the European Court of Justice. We see a similar case in Belgium. Belgium covered domestic workers insofar as they worked more than four hours a day. So this is one of those thresholds I was talking about. And then they ratified Convention 189, and then they changed this. And then domestic workers became subject to the same conditions as other employees, which is interesting because it also shows the impact of the ratification of international labor standards. Maybe one other thing I'd like to mention here is, you know, aside from this distinction between special schemes and general schemes, it's true that the way you organize the design of the system has an implication. And the other question here to think about is whether you make some the scheme mandatory or voluntary. And I think this is important because, again, there's many studies that show that voluntary coverage does not materialize into actual coverage. So it's quite important that in these extension strategies, we try to think about how we can cover domestic workers on a mandatory basis. And there are a lot of countries that are moving in this direction. And Mexico is quite an interesting case because they used to cover domestic workers on a voluntary basis. And then this was contested at the Supreme Court because it was considered that it was discriminatory against domestic workers. And now they're going through legislative reforms to ensure that domestic workers are covered under the general scheme under a mandatory basis. There was a similar experience in Brazil in 2013 and also in South Africa. So I think that this shows a little bit why the policy design is important. It also shows the importance of ratification of, of the convention. And I think it shows also the importance of social partners, you know, how important they are in these processes and these extension strategies, how they can support the design of these schemes in a way that they're attuned to the reality of domestic workers in a way that they're aligned with, you know, international social security standards, how they can also help in raising awareness about domestic workers and the realities in disseminating knowledge about the rights and obligation of social security uh, systems. And I think, or about Convention 189, and we can mention here, like the toolkit that WIGO developed with IDWF on Convention 189, and how they help also in the implementation of, of schemes. And we have a few examples in the report on that as well. Excellent. That's very interesting, the, this example of how the rectification of the convention had very concrete consequences to effectively include domestic workers in social protection schemes. So to wrap up, what are some of the concrete recommendations in the report for existing social protection to domestic workers? Can you point out some interesting examples? Yeah, no, thanks. That's a that's a really good question because, of course, the report mentioned some of the things we talked about before, so the gaps and some of the barriers. But obviously, I mean, an important aspect of this is that's great. You've pointed these these barriers out, these gaps. What are some of solutions, right? And this is what the report really intends to do. Now, we said that there were both legal barriers and barriers in implementation. So in terms of solution, you really need to address these two things. From the legal perspective, I mean, obviously, what's important is to ensure that you undertake the legal reform to address the, the situation of domestic workers not being covered by the Social Security legislation. You can do that either by specifically including them under the legislation, like it's done in Nicaragua, or you can adopt new legislation that sets out the manner in which they will be covered by the social security system. Um, so, for example, in Morocco, uh, this was done through a specific decree in 2019. Then, as we said, sometimes it's not so much about them being included in the legislation, but it's about the thresholds that exist in Social Security law 
And these, you know, you, you need to readdress these to ensure that they're not being excluded because the thresholds are just exclusive and, and keeping domestic workers out of the scope of a social security law. So for, just to give you an example, in Uruguay, they had extended legal coverage of healthcare benefits to all domestic workers who were working at least 13 days a month for at least 104 hours. So this is just one example. The other thing we mentioned about a barrier is the fact that sometimes because of legal definitions, for example, of the term employee or employer, the employment relationship of domestic workers and their employers is not recognized by law. So you really need to address this in order for them to be covered by these laws and regulations. And this is really important because it's important that the legal framework prevents the misclassification of employment and especially not to transfer the economic risks related, for example, to Social Security onto workers when in reality there is an employment relationship and it's the responsibility of the employer to register and pay contributions on their behalf. This has to be done in practice, but this has to be done at the level of, of legislation. And just to give you an example, in, in Indonesia, there's a regulation that concretely says that it's the employer's obligation to register domestic workers with the social security institutions. So those are kind of things that have to be addressed at the legal level. And of course, the report goes into much more detail. Then you also have to address implementation barriers, because we know that legal coverage doesn't necessarily always translate into practice. So we need to kind of see back to the barriers, what are the things that are impeding them from being covered and how do you address it? And one of the things, as we said, is there is a complexity in terms of registering with the social security institution and paying contributions. And what some countries have done in this regard is centralizing contribution collection processes into one single institution. So this is, it simplifies the process. It also creates economies of scale. This is mostly the case in all European countries, but a lot of other middle-income countries have been doing this, like Costa Rica and Uruguay. Then there's also an opportunity to harness technology. So technology can be a friend here, and you can simplify and streamline processes like registration and the payment of contributions through mobile applications or SMS. You can also build online registration and contribution systems. This is sort of what's being done in Argentina and Turkey. Costa Rica has also a platform for employers so to, to register, but also to provide information. And what's being used more and more, and especially in European countries, but it's quite interesting to look into, are the service voucher system. And these have been proven quite useful because they really bring a lot of the, these administrative procedures under one single tool. So it's a tool that allows you to register, pay the contributions, and often you just pay these contributions to this body that then they are responsible for outsourcing those contributions to different institutions. So this issue I had mentioned before about having to line up with one institution, then going to another institution, another institution that's very heavy for employers who are individual households, they sort of take this responsibility and you only deal with one institution. As a, you know, as a middle ground. And there they also provide model contracts, which is very useful for recognizing the employment relationship. And they also have a lot of information, even in a lot of languages. And there's a few countries, I mean, France is doing this, Belgium is doing this, the continent of Geneva is doing this, and, and they're quite interesting examples. Then, of course, we said that financing is really important. And the issue with domestic workers is they have a lack of or limited contributory capacity, but also their employers may also have a limited contributory capacity. So you need to address these kind of things within the financing mechanisms. And this can be done through the contributory provisions. So either 
you have differentiated contributory provisions for domestic workers, or you adapt them to their reality. For example, you make them based on wages or hours worked because of you know the more habitual employment arrangements in, for some domestic workers in some regions, or you reduce the contribution rate. You can also build in fiscal incentives into that to ensure that employers are actually paying the contribution rates, either by allowing them to deduce the contributions from their taxes or, for example, in the countries like France and Belgium where they use a service voucher system, those who participate in it get a reduction in the contribution payment. So it's also to encourage the formalization of, of domestic workers. And, of course, a lot of times just adapting the, the contributing collection can go a long way, but it's not sufficient. So you sometimes need to consider how you can integrate subsidies that are paid through general revenue for some of the for some of the domestic workers or categories of domestic workers that are most vulnerable. And there's a few countries doing this, like Costa Rica and Mauritius, where they sub the government subsidize the payment of the contributions for those earning under a certain amount. So these are some of the examples of the recommendations uh, that are in the report. There's a lot of others, like um, improving complaint and appeal mechanisms, improving the governance, raising awareness, working with social partners, what social partners can do, using a holistic approach, because obviously social protection cannot be seen in silo. You need to coordinate other policies, whether they be on wages or working time. Um, and very important, uh, the, just the last thing I want to mention is also taking into regard migrant domestic workers make up a lot of domestic workers in some countries and we know that they experience the same challenges as domestic workers but also more challenges due to their status so it's very important to also consider what specific things need to be addressed from the policy level to to try to remedy the the lack of coverage they have so yeah i'll leave it at that there's other things in the report but yeah yeah i'm sure there is and and i'm looking forward to reading it well, Maya Stern Plaza, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I hope everybody will enjoy reading the report. But I hope especially that it'll be also very useful to try to remedy some of these huge and significant social security deficits that domestic workers are experiencing. And if you want to learn more about the newest ILO report on domestic workers' right to social protection, we will leave the link at the description of the episode. And also, if you want to learn more about the domestic workers' struggle to access social protection, please listen to episode 5 on violence at the workplace and episode 25 on social security for informal workers in South Africa. We will leave some links for blog articles and publications at the show notes. And don't forget to follow Wigo in our social media channels, Twitter and Facebook to get the most updated publications and more. I am Sirius Afshar and this was the Wigo's Info More Economy podcast, Social Protection. See you next time.